Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. If you're an author, it doesn't get much better than this. Maggie Haberman's new book, Confidence Man, debuted this week at number one on Amazon and number one in the New York Times. And believe me, it's a blockbuster of a book. The most in-depth portrait of Donald Trump we've seen so far. And to me, the title says it all. Haberman paints Donald Trump as the confidence man he is and has always been. As a developer, he lied, he cheated, he bullied, he insulted people. He surrounded himself with obnoxious people like Roy Cohn and Roger Stone. As president, he lied, he cheated, he bullied, he insulted people. And again, he surrounded himself with obnoxious people like Steve Bannon, Rudy Giuliani, and still Roger Stone. And he's doing the same thing as ex-president. Look for the Pulitzer Prize for The Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump, and The Breaking of America. But first, Maggie Haberman herself joins us on today's podcast. Maggie Haberman, welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, so Maggie, I read on uh, Politico that you were a little nervous before the book came out because you weren't (laughs) sure anybody would like it. Uh, Now, (laughs) you're number one on the New York Times uh, and number one on Amazon. Uh, You're feeling a little better about the book? (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I'm very happy that it found an audience. I, you know, I think I think every person who writes a book is concerned before it goes out into the world. Um, but uh, you know, it, but this is you you know this bill because you read it. But it's a it's a different kind of book, and mm-hmm. I was, um, I was you know hopeful that people would understand what I was trying to do, which was describe sort of how the presidency of Donald Trump was foretold by the past of Donald Trump, um, and and. Uh, enough people seem to have, so I'm happy. I think you made that point uh, over and over again, very, very clearly and very powerfully. Let me ask you first, I'm really struck by the title to your book, Confidence Man. I mean, so um, I thought I knew what it meant. Webster says a confidence man is a person who tricks other people in order to get their money. You have covered Donald Trump almost exclusively for six years is that how you sum him up? Well, I think that there's two ways to look at this title, Bill. And one is certainly that everything about Donald Trump is about projecting confidence, which is, you mm-hmm. know, his MO. But the other is that, you know, we are we're talking about somebody who has a very long history of um, assuring people that uh, he is something that, that he isn't. Um, and I think definitionally that 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 meets the, the confidence man definition. 
And and tricking people, right? Using lies, using kind of exaggerations or kind of whatever to con yeah, people. Yeah, I mean, the, he, he, he convinces people that he is something that he is not, and he convinces them, be it his customers or be it, you know, frankly, the voters who uh, are very hard to shake loose from him at this point, whether it was intentionally through his own, his own lies and his own artifice built brick by brick through news stories over the course of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, or whether it was through the art of television and The Apprentice. Um, mm-hmm. He has a very long history of, of convincing people that he is something that he isn't and, and using that to his advantage. So you indicated earlier, and that was certainly my big takeaway from the book, is that you can't really, un- your, your point I think you wanted people to know is you can't really know Donald Trump today or understand Donald Trump today unless you know him, where he came from, right, and how he got there. T- tell us a little about that. What, what are the threads that you see? So I, I tried to go back and look at um you know, some of the key influences on him and, 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 and those people were his father, Fred, you know, about whom a fair amount's been written. Um, Roy Cohn, about whom you know, mm-hmm. endless ink has been spilled. George Steinbrenner, the former owner of the Yankees, who stylistically, um, you know, was, a, was a, a big influence for Trump. And then I think, frankly, there's been less attention on this and less understanding of it. But Roger Stone, without whom yes. there really is no Trump presidency, ultimately, um, for a variety of reasons. And so I wanted to look at the people who shaped him, and I wanted to look at the forces that shaped him in New York City during a a period of time where corruption touched so many aspects of life, the media, the real estate business that his family ran, aspects of, of, of his own family's business, the political system in New York City, which was still very, very, you know, uh, derivative of the Tammany Hall era in terms of machine boss politics, and then his own idiosyncrasies as a person. And I, I wanted to show how all of those factors, you know, contributed to what he exported to Washington and to the Republican Party. The phrase that you use is frozen in time. There has been a, a real preserved and amber quality to him, Bill, that you can see when he speaks publicly. You know, his cultural touchstones are all from the 1980s. He talks about how many times he's on the cover of national news magazines. He talks about movies from that era. And most most significantly, his view of crime and his sort of view of, of fear-based politics is stuck in that era. And it was an era in New York City when the crime rate was incredibly high. And despite efforts, and, and crime is a, is, a, is on the mind of, of a number of voters nationally right now. Sure. But despite, but despite what people keep saying, it is, at least in New York City, it is nothing like what it was back then. And so, um, you know, he really learned about how you make these appeals to fear. And and one thing that I explored, too, was, you know, in his reaction to the, the very famous Central Park jogger case uh, in, in 1989, which uh, in which a, a white banker was was found brutalized in Central Park after she had been on a jog. She was found several hours later. Several um, teenagers, all of color were arrested. And Trump, even before, you know, any trial had commenced, took out a full page ad in the newspapers saying, bring back the death penalty, bring back our police. And it was a full page ad that glorified police brutality, Mm -hmm. um, that that talked about unshackling the cops. And he addressed, he takes aim at something Ed Koch, the mayor was saying to people, which was that he didn't want the public to have quote unquote, hate and rancor 
for these young men in their hearts. And Trump says, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I want, I want people to hate them. You know, I, I want that. And it was as clear a guiding ethos as anything that Trump would articulate publicly, which was that hate should be a civic good. And I think that as much as anything is something that he exported as well. Uh, so I, I thought I knew Trump pretty well, but reading about his MO, if you will, as a young developer, I was really struck by th- this was a guy that we saw, you know, 20, 30 years later uh, in the White House. I want to read for our uh, listeners, Maggie, you quote Alan Marcus, who was one of his consultants at the Trump Organization uh, here, page 139, I'm reading from, quote, Trump was an intimidate, he, this, he said this back then, Trump was an intimidating figure who wore people down. He was as overbearing with his own executives as he was with reporters, always pressing a fanciful narrative which exaggerated his worth, his ability as a manager, his relationships with women, etc. The narrative was more important than reality. Boom. That's right. That's right. And the narrative is what got him elected. The narrative is what he tried to control throughout four years of his presidency. Um, you know, he, he came to realize that uh, if he could convince people that what he was saying was real, the details and the facts didn't really matter. And, and I have to say, he lost the election, obviously, in 2020, despite what he says. I'm not sure that that would have been the case if he had handled COVID even remotely competently and seriously. He has appealed to a lot of people across this country with that narrative. Um, and it is it is a reminder of, you know, again, the power of the television medium. And I think it is a reminder for those of us uh, in our business, certainly in, in, in the print business and in, in what I do, the unintended consequences of, of some of what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were two, two um, things that he excelled in as a developer, which again struck me as something he certainly continued through the rest of his career and certainly in the White House. Uh, let me ask you first, filing lawsuits. I mean, do you, do you have any idea of how many lawsuits this guy has filed in his professional career? <laughs> There was a tracker that USA Today did at some point. I think it was in 2016. Um, and I think even then it didn't capture everything because he's obviously filed many more. Yeah. Um, it's, it's hundreds and hundreds and yeah. hundreds. And he's been, and he's been, and, and, and I, let me just asterisk that the hundreds and hundreds include not just things he's filed, but cases that have been filed against him or that he's been oh, a party right. to. He is, he is the most litigious elected official that I have ever covered. Um, certainly the most litigious president. And, and it is another one of these things that he has exported to um, the Republican Party is that, you know, threats of lawsuits are, are much more prolific than they used to be. Right. And he makes it pretty clear, right? He's, you know, he admits he doesn't file these lawsuits because he thinks he's got a good case or he expects to win. Right. There's Sometimes it's to cause pain. I mean, yeah. he, he was, yeah. when, when he, when he talked to uh, Paul Fari at the Washington Post in 2016 about the lawsuit that he had filed against Tim O'Brien, who wrote the book Trump Nation, which, you know, the, there was a single line in there that Trump zeroed in on for his lawsuit, which was about his net worth. And uh, Trump lost that lawsuit, uh, but Trump was very clear that he did it to cause Tim pain. And, and I, and I want to make clear, too, he does this also to, you know, chill other people mm-hmm. from taking on similar exercises. 
Yeah, I remember the phrase, uh, I did it to make his life miserable. (laughs) Very understated, yes. (laughs) And the the other practice is just this total disregard for the truth. I mean, you open up with this incredible scene when he's 18 years old at the dedication of a bridge, and he's there with his father, and he talks about it, and he lies about the whole deal. Nothing about the anecdote that he tells is true, with the exception of he he gets. Uh, I, I don't think I mentioned this, but he 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 gets the man the, the bridge designer's age right. But he's talking about um, that's it. He's yeah. talking about you know this this moment, and he describes it fourteen years later. And then he did other times too, um, where he's attending the opening ceremony of the the, the dedication ceremony of the Verrazano Bridge connecting Brooklyn to Staten Island. And it was, you know, a lengthy project that had taken forever to actually push through. And it was, you know, Robert Moses, who is the subject of the power broker, the Robert Caro book, um, and who, who, uh, someone who, who Trump and his father, Fred admired, uh, was the master of ceremonies. And in describing, um, this bridge, this bridge engineer, uh, who is this very mild mannered guy? I mean, Moses just ex- you know praises him to the hilt as a as a mm-hmm. as a historic figure. He just forgets to say his name. And Trump later describes this as the rain was pouring down for hours, and everyone was congratulating each other. And there's this poor guy in the corner, and he gets the country the man's from, from uh, uh, wrong, and no one even pays attention to him, and no one acknowledges him. And it's it, it wasn't raining. It was incredibly sunny. You can watch the video of it. It's online. And it's just amazing how, you know, his comments, and I write about this, went unchecked right. for years because who would imagine somebody would get such details wrong? Yeah. Or even, yeah, particularly somebody, you know, that young, that impressionable. But also, right. he lied about the value of his properties, right? Uh, uh, as Michael Cohen testified in, uh, in front of Congress much later. Uh, he lied about his net worth, right? He, yep. he, he just lied about everything and got away with right. it. Right, he, he, and got away with it. I mean, it's it's funny. You know, Michael Cohen's uh, House uh, oversight testimony really helped accelerate this investigation, which then became a lawsuit by the New York Attorney General against him um, and and his children and, and their company. There were decades of this where, and I try to show this in the book, you know, a lot of people knew that he said things that weren't true. Reporters knew it. Politicians knew it. Prosecutors knew it. But he was sort of part of the system. And it's something that he said, actually, himself in 2016 about how I give to these politicians and, you know, they take my calls. And he wasn't wrong. Right. Uh, I was struck by the parallel uh, that uh, how the banks, as it was, again, lying about his net worth, and some of this came out or, or you know, what he had put in a property or what it was worth. But the banks kind of stuck with him, right? Because he intimidated them; they were almost afraid to cross him. Uh, well, yeah, I would just can I just I just want to actually just add one asterisk to that. I think intimidated, but also I think that he scared them into into believing hmm. that it was a greater risk to them financially to cut him loose. Yeah, um, and I and I think that that was a big piece of it. So the parallel I was looking at is that what motivated in 2016 so many republicans who were afraid of cutting him loose i think it's i think it's part of it sure i mean i think that it's he intimidated them not because they were afraid of what he would do to them directly himself but what he could do to them with his voters right who were also their voters and that remains to this day you mentioned roger stone i was surprised i didn't realize how early 
Roger Stone shows up in Donald Trump's life. But actually, before he ran for president in 2016, um, he had had looked at it, right, or been tempted three times, uh, including one in 2011, when, when you kind of took him more seriously than maybe you should have, as you point out. But Roger Stone was there urging him to run for president in 1988. Yeah, Roger Stone was uh, uh, with him in 1987 when uh, yeah. Trump when Trump was announcing, you know, unveiling the art of the deal, the book that you know mm-hmm. cemented this image of him that was totally contrary with who he actually is, uh, and was part of the myth making about himself. But Stone described to me by several people as the person who really came up with this idea of combining a book launch with a, a presidential candidacy float. And Stone goes with him to New Hampshire, where this mm. draft effort uh, that Stone has said he helped arrange uh, was being conducted by a, a local resident. Stone at the time was committed to another candidate, and he was uh, wearing a like Groucho Marx glasses, <laughs> the Trump helicopter. Um, <laughs> he was in disguise, right? He was in disguise, yes. Um, and, and, and then a year later, um, he... He commissions from Doug Schoen, the the pollster who's done a ton of work for, among others, Mike Bloomberg, um, this 95 page report about public opinion of Donald Trump in the country. And it's, you know, it's too late for Trump to run that cycle, but it, it seemed aimed at trying to sell Trump on a future in national politics. Realistically, yeah. you know, they would not be the first consultants to do that with, you know, a, a, a wealthy candidate, even one who's not as wealthy as he says he is. Um, but one of the things that was interesting to me about that poll was that it tested, it showed that there really was a vein for Trump to tap into, but it also mm-hmm. tested how people would react to Trump not paying income tax. And I was fascinated that they tested it that early. Right. Interesting. Uh, you know, the old phrase, by your friends, you shall know them, or by their friends, you shall know them. We talk about Roger Stone. Well, first of all, does Donald Trump have any friends? Uh, not in the conventional sense. My colleague, Alan mm-hmm. Foyer, wrote a great um a great piece in um, uh, 2016 about Trump having no friends. <laughs> and, um, and it was, and it was, you know, and Trump reacted very angrily to it. He has people who I think consider themselves his friends to a point, but he just doesn't experience, you know, friendship right. the way most people do. So whether we call them, I don't know, allies or hangers on, when you associates, look at the people yeah, around Trump, right? In yep. addition to Roger Stone, right? You've got Michael Cohen. You got Steve Bannon. You got Roy Cohn, as you mentioned. I mean, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, John Eastman. I mean, these are like the most odious people in American politics. I, I was wondering, where's Dick Morris? Right? How, how- well, Dick, he, he's around. He's <laughs> oh. in the book. I mean, he's he's an he's an old family friend of the Trumps, and Dick Morris uh, is somebody to whom, during the twenty uh, twenty campaign, Trump it inst- instructed people to send Dick Morris polling data. <laughs> Um, and the, the, these these questions start showing up when the real pollsters like Tony Fabrizio are doing their work, and it's Morris mm. suggesting them. Yeah. So you got to admit, I mean, with that gang of, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to say gang of thug, but that gang of uh, questionable characters, it says a lot about Trump himself, doesn't it? Trump is Trump um, gravitates toward a certain kind of person, and always has. I, you know, one of the things that Bill Barr told people. Um, in 2020, when he was leaving, was that uh, you know he remember he left in December, shortly before the presidency ended, but that you know he had he had not really understood 
sort of why Trump seemed to prefer some of these characters and really gravitated toward him, toward them, but he does, you know, the Stones and, and others. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I think that goes back to that Roy Cohn infused uh, view of the world. Right. Uh, Maggie, uh, I want to ask you about Donald Trump today, because if you interviewed him three times for this book, you're still in touch with him and with the people around him. Uh, but we're going to take a quick break here on the Bill Press Bot, and then we'll be right back. Well, friends, you know, last week we asked you to uh, jump in and uh, give some help to Tim Ryan, Democratic Senate candidate in Ohio. This week, let's look at Pennsylvania, another important race, another big pickup opportunity for Democrats. And it looks good for John Fetterman, but still can't take anything for granted. So please, t- you know, John, look, John Fetterman versus Mehmet Oz, come on. The difference is one is qualified for Senate and one is not. One is this full-out Trumper, 2020 denier, elitist who's got 10 homes, including a mansion in New Jersey, a mansion in West Palm Beach, a condo in Istanbul, uh, Mehmet Oz, who serves his friends, and then there's John Fetterman. Man, he's for real. Look at him in his jeans and a hoodie, lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, former mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania, a real man of the people, going to fight for working-class Americans, and he's very happy just to serve a veggie tray. Come on. JohnFetterman.com. He's our guy. JohnFetterman.com will make a great member of the U.S. Senate. He needs our help, and let's give him at the last minute here all the help we can. Again, JohnFetterman.com. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. And we're back on today's podcast. Uh, very, very happy to welcome to the podcast Maggie Haberman, a uh, great, great uh, Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times reporters covered Donald Trump at least for the last six years and beyond. Her new book is out. It's uh, number one in the New York Times, number one on Amazon, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. 
It's about 500 pages. It is worth every minute of every page. Uh, certainly uh, the most insightful book on Donald Trump yet to appear. Uh, Maggie, welcome back. Before we get back to Donald Trump, I, I want to ask you a little bit about you. I mean, you know, I knew Lou Cannon, or I should not use a past tense for Lou Cannon, good friend <laughs> of mine, who will always be remembered as Ronald Reagan's biographer, you know, Robert Cairo, LBJ's biographer. Uh, you've hitched your wagon to uh, Donald Trump. Any regrets? Well, I didn't think that it was an active choice of hitching. Um, you know, <laughs> he, was, he was the person who I was assigned to cover, and um, yeah. it was an assignment that not a lot of people wanted in 2016, and or 2015, I should say. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that I have a perspective on him um, by virtue of having come from the same world he comes from in New York, and so, um, or aspects of it. And I, I thought that I had an, an obligation to, to, uh, share that. Um, and, uh, so no, I don't have any regrets. You, you told Michael Cruz at Politico that Trump was both your crutch and your salvation. No, I didn't say that. I said work in general, the job of journalism is my, is my curse and my salvation. Uh, and that, that, that was true well before Donald Trump came along. Uh, uh, thank you for the correction. I think that's true of all of us uh, in the field of journalism, yeah. correct? But you have a strange relationship. I mean, he has insulted you on occasions, calling you a third-rate reporter, I believe, and and worse. Um, and yet uh, he stills willing to talk to you uh, and treat you with some respect. How, how do you analyze that? I mean, he even called you in front of a couple of aides that referred to you as his psychiatrist. What I write in the book about that that line is just that, you know, it was meant to flatter and that he, you know, he says mm -hmm. it about a bunch of people and he, <laughs> um, uh, and he treats everyone like they're his, uh, uh, his psychiatrist. Uh, and so I think that that's one bucket. Um, you know, he's a subject who I cover just like I've covered, you know, a number of other subjects. I've covered Hillary Clinton. I've covered Rudy Giuliani. I've covered Mike Bloomberg. Um, I've covered for more of a remove three presidents and, um, you know, he's just somebody who interprets coverage differently than other people. And he's uniquely obsessed with the New York times. And so, um, I just think that it's, uh, uh, I think it's just something, something different. Well, I was struck by the fact that you said, I, I believe uh, correctly, that the first interview, your first interview with Donald Trump for this book is one that he requested before you had. They offered every almost every person writing a book, and there were many people uh -huh. writing yeah, books, yeah. Um, an interview with him. And uh, and I and I, I mean initially I thought this is not going to be worth very much, um, but actually it was pretty interesting um, talking about his his history in New York. And I asked for two follow ups. Mm -hmm. Have you heard from him since the book was published? I have not spoken to him since the book was published. No idea. Have you heard from others as to whether he's uh, angry or? Um, I mean, he attacked the book. He attacked me. What is he focused on now? Most focused on now? The investigations and um, and when he's going to announce his candidacy. Do you think he's aware of the legal troubles that he didn't recognizes how much legal trouble he's in? I do. I think that he I think he recognizes the Justice Department. Uh, investigation into the documents is serious. Uh, and I think that's part of what's motivating him to announce a candidacy soon. And 2024, do you believe he's already decided? Uh, I think he's backed himself into a corner where he has to. 
I don't know how genuinely he really wants to do this, but uh, I think he he I think he will declare a campaign. Right. Um, I was stuck also at the end of the book where you mentioned the phrase, I think it's on the very last page, after all of this, quote, almost no one really knows him. Boy, that says a lot to me, right? He's a very complicated person. Yeah, and I and I think a cipher in in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, he he and he does that intentionally. I've, I've there there are few people who are as as messy and sloppy as he is in so many ways. He's extremely good at compartmentalizing, uh, and you know he shows people he shows different people different aspects of himself. Um, and uh, you know the, the the think of all the people who predicted that you know he would eventually accept what was happening after November, 2020. These are people who worked for him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That was just obviously a wrong take. Right. So I think that, I think people want to believe certain things about him and they're not always true. Do you assess Donald Trump's impact on American politics? How has he changed American politics? I think it's, it's incredibly significant. I, you know, I mean, I think, look, it, and I try to trace this in the book, he took aspects of the tea party, and rolled that into, uh, you know, his own form of, of Trumpism. You know, mm-hmm. the Tea Party didn't include this protectionism um, that, that he incorporated. Um, he certainly picked up an aspect of, 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 of nativism uh, and sort of nationalist paranoia. Um, you know, part of that he already had had for years, and he just sort of meshed it with existing Tea Party anger and energy and, and repackaged it and repurposed it, which is something that he's done a long time. But now, I mean, you know, he has, he has remade the party in his image. He has stamped out the bulk of resistance to him um, in various places. And these midterms are going to be another test of, of his reach. Uh, and seems um, to have changed politics also in, would you agree in that Almost you can get away with anything now, right? You can say anything. You don't necessarily uh, – being caught in a lie is not necessarily um, a killer, right? Uh, or relationships with women or racist things that might be said. I mean, it's almost like anything goes after Donald Trump. I think it's worth remembering that the the, the Bill Clinton years included some of what you're talking about in terms of yes. women, in terms of lying under oath, in terms and so forth. And I do think that that disillusioned a number of voters. It's but Bill Clinton, unlike Donald Trump, you know, accepts existing systems. <laughs> does not does not suggest they shouldn't apply to him, um, which is just a fundamental difference. That I think is what Donald Trump has uh, has has exported to his party is this belief that you know if you don't like a system, you don't have to accept it, mm-hmm. um, and that's just different. Uh, in terms of his relationship with women, I was struck uh, in the book by, you know, the the three trophy wives, right? Ivana, and and that was very hot and heavy for a while, and then he ceremonious, unceremoniously dumped her for uh, Marla, uh, and then unceremoniously dumped her for Melania. Where are you in touch with her? Where is Melania these days? I mean, to me, she's just disappeared from the scene. Well, I don't think she ever really liked the the presidency. I don't think that ever. Hmm. Um, uh, made her particularly happy. Um, you know, I, I expect that if he runs, she will be supportive in public. Um, I don't think that, I think that most of his family 
does not really love the idea of another presidential campaign, but I don't think that will stop him. Well, that was my next question. In fact, the others who have seemed to have disappeared and tried to put some distance from the day-to-day Trump drama are Ivanka and Jared. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting. They, they've, they've, they're not visible with him right now, except for when the same email list that is pushing out his false claims about the 2020 election is also pushing Jared Kushner's book. Um, and and <laughs> that's, that's where he's most visible. Um, but, uh, but no, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I don't know that Jared Kushner will be back if, if Trump runs again. Uh, and finally, you point out that uh, Donald Trump has not been very eager to join the former president's club. <laughs> no. Are they eager to have him? <laughs> no, no and no. It's, it's, it's mutual resistance. <laughs> I, it's hard to see a time when, you know, George W. and Bill Clinton and uh, poor, poor Jimmy Carter, right, could sit down and have a beer with Donald Trump. <laughs> like, I mean, what's, what's amazing is that they can they can you know, they can all do it with each other, you know, I mean, yeah, there's, you yeah. know, it's, it's, there's, there's, there is a camaraderie there and it's just not Trump. Um, Trump told the head of the New York real estate um, board of New York who tried to get him to join at one point, I'm not a joiner. And I think that there's probably truer, truer, truer words never spoken about someone. About Donald Trump. Confidence Man is the name of the book, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. Maggie Haberman, again, congratulations. A great amount of work uh, and and energy and everything went into the book, and it really paid off. So uh, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, onward and upward. Thank you, Bill. All right, friends, that's our uh, podcast today with Maggie Haberman. Again, the book is The Confidence Man. There's a link in the episode notes of today's podcast for you to get your copy of Confidence Man. Uh, you think you know everything about Donald Trump? No, you don't. But you will after you read The Confidence Man. Great, great book. Uh, and again, that's it for today. We'll be back Friday with our Reporters Roundtable. As always, uh, not much going on in Washington because Congress is out of town, but a lot on the campaign trail. So we'll take a look at the uh, uh, key Senate races, the key governor's races, Two big debates coming up this week. Uh, the second debate in Ohio between Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance and a debate in the governor's race in Georgia between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. All of that on this week's Roundtable. Be good. Take care of yourself. And we'll see you on Friday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.